0: Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. On this episode, I ask, do we need prisons? In 2018, the incarceration rate in Canada was 131 adults for every 100,000 people. In recent years, the rate has declined. Yet indigenous and racialized individuals are structurally overrepresented in the system, and Canada's correctional apparatus is often criticized as inhumane and ineffective. In May of this year, Senator Kim Pate, who has long been an advocate for prisoners' rights, argued that the government's attempt to end the practice of solitary confinement was a failure. In August, a Superior Court judge ordered the federal government to compensate thousands of inmates who had been placed in solitary confinement for violating their rights. My guests today are Dr. Justin Pichet, an associate professor in the Department of Criminology at the University of Ottawa, where he is also the director of the Carceral Studies Research Collective, and Suhail Bensleman, who is a former prisoner and a member of the Criminalization and Punishment Education Project, the Ottawa Sanctuary City Network, and the coordinator of the Jail Accountability and Information Line. Now, let's start with a look at the theory versus practice of prisons. And we'll start with you, Justin. What are the prisons meant to achieve, and what do they actually achieve?
1: Well. We can see imprisonment as being a failure. Um, Norwegian abolitionist uh, Thomas Matissen called it a fiasco in terms of its own purposes. Um, It fails to deter uh, people from lawbreaking. Um, So in terms of general deterrence, making an example out of someone um, does not um, make people uh, take different decisions as to whether or not They're going to commit an offense, uh, generally speaking, Um, and in terms of a specific deterrence, it doesn't uh, being penalized um, doesn't uh, deter someone um, from uh, engaging in an act um, that is criminalized in the future. Um, It's not the same as as uh, the kind of deterrence one would perhaps encounter uh, when receiving a consequence at home because the. Authority, the parent giving the consequences seen, generally speaking, as being legitimate, um, whereas uh, folks do not have uh, that same relationship uh, with the state when they come into conflict with the law. Um, the prison is claimed uh, through the time that we take away from people, offers justice um, to society, justice to uh, victims. Um, and again, um, the literature on victimology has shown that in fact, um, victims have a variety of different, uh, needs when they are harmed, uh, access to information, uh, recognition, um, uh, compensation, uh, apologies and so on and so forth. A lot of various different things and some do, uh, value retribution, um, do value punishment. Um, but in many cases, they don't, and in uh, other cases where they do, there's a variety of different needs that, that prison itself doesn't um, respond to. And then you have the objective of rehabilitation, this idea that you can put someone in a cage and it will transform them into quote-unquote law-abiding and productive citizens within the capitalist society that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, you know argument falls flat on its face um, in terms of Of uh, the actual impacts of incarceration undermine um, different attempts uh, at quote unquote rehabilitation within uh, those settings. Uh, People can and do change, um, often for the better, um, but the prison has never been seen uh, as the best environment to affect those changes in. And even in the what works literature uh, that exists, um, it, it could be read as what works best. Within the context of human caging and ideally um, interventions, if they are uh, needed, uh, would happen elsewhere in community settings where these conflicts and these harms occurred in the first place.
0: I want to get to the community point in a a bit, but I want to very quickly before turning to Suhail, pick up on the retribution point. I mean, the urge to punish, the, the sort of curious need that some have for retribution that isn't meant to be part of the theory of prisons, though, is it? I mean, uh, when I see prisons defended, it's never as as a vehicle for retribution. It's always sort of cast as rehabilitation. I mean, what, what to what extent is it about retribution? To what extent is it about the urge to punish that that some people seem to have that that supports prisons?
1: Well, I mean, the modern prison uh, in this country uh, pre Confederation emerged uh, as a response to uh, Corporal and capital punishment being seen by the population as increasingly unjustified and brutal and draconian, um, and so that's where you see the construction of Kingston Penitentiary in 1835 and other sites of confinement like that uh, throughout the country. And I think the the idea behind that is that yeah, we're we're going to punish people. Uh, And um, and and that is a justified thing because they've victimized quote unquote the state. Mm -hmm. They've victimized uh, other people, and this is seen as um, you know a a counterbalance uh, to the harm uh, that they've caused. But I mean, the idea. Uh, that we've humanized punishment by doing that uh, over time has shown that that several of the different kinds of pains that are inflicted on people through incarceration can be just as brutal right. as corporal uh, punishment. We do have death by incarceration uh, in this country with a number of people who lose their lives, the number of people who are kept behind bars until um, they die, uh, even when they are on their deathbeds and... Um, could be uh, in the community on compassionate release. We often don't release people that way um, because of retribution. And I I think uh, Canadians um, often like to think that, you know, in comparison, say, to the United States that has, you know, roughly six to seven times our incarceration rate, that we're like this uh, benevolent, uh, um, progressive uh, nation, which I guess in contrast to the United States, we could be seen that way. But at the same time, there's a lot of damage that happens behind the walls. Um, a lot of people who lose their lives. That would suggest that our that our system is you know barbaric and draconian as well. And I think that that's that's the nature of human caging.
0: I want to pick up on this point about cost, and I'll, I'll ask you, Suhail about this. I mean, if in theory. The returns are meant to be rehabilitation, and obviously that's a flawed assumption. What about the cost? I mean, what are the human costs, the opportunity costs, the financial costs, uh, any other costs of having prisons versus having an alternative system?
2: Yeah, um, I was speaking to one of my friends who is uh, serving a life sentence of 25 years um, because of killing a bank teller during a robbery. Um, and um, he he was a migrant, came here, um, started working with his parents, uh, started working that didn't uh, work out so well. He uh, his boss, I think, was not able to pay him, and and then uh, this led to that. He became engaged in- involved with uh, certain uh, fellows from his neighborhood, and they started doing bank robberies. Um, when he um, was incarcerated in a maximum security prison, uh, in a penitentiary maximum security prison, it cost almost 400000 to keep him there a year. So it cost 400000 to keep a man in a maximum security prison. It costs almost $450,000 to keep a woman in a maximum security prison. So then my friend is like, when I was struggling with like the new country, with a new context, if I would have been supported and people would have, or like the state or whatever, would have gave me $350,000, put it in my account, uh, pay for my tuition, for my university, pay for housing, Do you think I would have walked in the bank and like robbed it? So this just shows to what extent we are uh, ready to uh, invest in punishment and divest from people because that's clearly uh, this instance, for example, clearly highlights that. And... um, and this is just like a financial cost that has obviously a social repercussion, which is like a death uh, of a woman who was working at a bank. But also uh, there's other social costs uh, to incarceration. Um, first of all, uh, the uh, cost on the healthcare system in Canada, for example. Uh, people go to jail. Uh, they don't have access to adequate uh, health care. Um, and that means that they, when they leave the jail, they are in a bad shape. So we bear that cost. We have to uh, uh, pay for those uh, increased medical interventions, uh, uh, visits to the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another cost is on the mental health of uh, certain folks who are incarcerated. So basically... Um, for example, segregation that is now deemed an inhumane uh, and barbaric practice um, has a um, a grave um, toll on the prisoner's psyche right so now we kn- now we know that because of like Supreme Court decision and whatnot yeah. but incarcerated persons been raising these questions from long time so, these are some of the costs, I guess. So meant on the mental health uh, and the physical health of, of prisoners and their families, because that situation is stressful for prisoners and their families, because families often feel as if they are also doing time when their loved ones are incarcerated, right? right? Um, uh, financial costs of incarceration, of opening up bigger jails, like, for example, here in Ottawa, uh, through a, a private-public partnership uh, they are announcing, or they are they are trying to go ahead with a almost a billion-dollar jail between five hundred million and a billion-dollar jail. Wouldn't you think that those monies can be invested somewhere else? Already, OCDC has seventy percent of people who are innocent. You know, can we like like better our bail system so we can allow people to uh, uh, um, benefit from? their charter protected right of being innocent until proven guilty. Can we do those things? But instead, we want to expand human caging, and uh, every single Canadian pays for it.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about alternatives. Justin, I'll I'll come back to you on this. What would an alternative system look like? If we said, okay, we want to reform prisons, we want to abolish prisons in the long run, uh, what would we replace them with? Well, I think we have to look
1: at how did this system emerge uh, to begin with to understand where we need to kind of intervene in terms of plotting the future. So we know, for instance, that uh, Indigenous people are roughly, you know, three to four percent of the general population, yet they represent um, federally, you know, around uh, 30 percent of federally sentenced prisoners. And the percentages uh, can be higher depending on the province that you're in, particularly in the prairies, um, in terms of uh, the composition of provincial uh, and territorial prisoners throughout this country. And so how do we understand that? Um, How do we understand their mass incarceration? The fact that Canada's overall rate of imprisonment uh, is usually, you know, um, somewhere between 100 and 130 adults per 100,000 residents, yet... For Indigenous people, the rate is 900 over 900 per 100,000. That's like, you know, that's uh, nearly seven to eight times more. Um, How do we make sense of that? Well, we in this country have a reserve system, had a pass and permit system, um, a ban on on Indigenous ceremonies, um, residential schools, uh, 60 scoop and mass adoption, um, all these different laws, policies, and practices that systematically uh, disorganized Indigenous communities and their ability uh, to resolve um, conflicts and harms. Um, And uh, a situation where, um, you know, many folks in Indigenous communities now um, have a significant um, chance of being um, victims, survivors um, of being criminalized mm-hmm. um, because at every level of the system uh, they are um, focused on more by the police, they are treated differentially right. in our courts, they are treated differentially once they end up in our prisons, um, You know, subject to more use of force incidents, subject to uh, solitary confinement more often, more difficulty getting parole. I'm talking for people, if you compared like a white person yeah. with, a, with a certain kind of profile to an indigenous person with that same profile, except um, you know the color of their skins different and they're indigenous, uh, the white person is getting treated better at every stage um, most of the time. And so if we understand that the rise of imprisonment in this country is intimately connected um, uh, to, um, to colonialism, uh, then we need to tackle, um, you know, those things, work towards reconciliation, work towards decolonization, um, and, and allow um, Indigenous communities um, to um, have the resources uh, necessary and the self-determination necessary, because uh, when we get involved, we screw things up, um, so the self-determination necessary to be able to organize their communities uh, and respond to complex social harms and conflicts within their communities using their ways. Um, and so that's a starting point, I think, for for me. Um, and then beyond that, if we're, we're thinking about other ways that we can work towards prison abolition through attrition, because it's... You know, for me, the abolitionist uh, approach isn't about uh, burning the prisons or shutting things down and releasing um, everyone out into the community tomorrow. Um, it's something that is. Is there anyone
0: arguing for that? I mean, I, um,
1: I'm I'm just trying to point yeah. to folks who who That's will say even of even, the movement, right? even in criminology literature there are folks who have. Uh, pointed to abolitionist scholars and, and said, well, you're just about closing yeah. the jails down, burning the walls down, and um, you, you have no solution to social harm and conflicts, which is actually actually not true. Yeah. Restorative justice, for instance, um, this idea when someone gets into a, a conflict... And, they, and the victim and the perpetrator and the communities have face-to-face encounters to determine what has happened, what the needs are, and how they address the human needs stemming from those conflicts. Um, that, that comes um, from people pursuing alternatives to imprisonment, uh, transformative justice, which seeks to do what RJ does, but also um, tries to identify the social structures uh, that contribute to harm. Like, you know, um, for instance, can we talk about sexual assault without tackling uh, heteropatriarchy, Mm -hmm. Um, talking about misogyny? Absolutely not. But our criminal justice system doesn't really play with that. Um, A Restorative justice process might not touch that, but a transformative justice process that pays attention to human needs and tries to resolve them and at the same time tries to identify social structures and then work on those in order to make our communities more capable of preventing harm, first of all, and then responding to it, um, is, is the kind of thing that abolitionists, um, promote, um, you know, folks will talk about, well, that, that sounds like we're just going to, to not hold people accountable, uh, for their actions. Well, I'd say putting someone in a cage where they don't have to deal with the immensity of the harm that they may have caused to others and may not have to face their community or may not have to face their victim, Mm -hmm. that sounds like not holding someone accountable to me. A transformative justice process that brings those people in to see the human face of the impacts, that's accountability. That's what I think will produce uh, healthier and safer communities, and the evidence bears that out. Um, So I I think we need to have um, more alternatives uh, to calling the police to to sending these conflicts into the penal system in a way that basically doesn't satisfy anyone. And I mean, even people, like when you look at the penal system, uh, people who have been victims um, of the most monstrous kinds of offenses, like, you know, murders of children, and then you have the parents. Um, Even when we get the most severe sentence that we have on the books, rarely is anyone satisfied with what has happened? Even in jurisdictions that have the death penalty, mm-hmm. um, the, the victimology literature shows that the ma- vast majority of the time, even when someone uh, who has killed your loved one has had their own life taken by the state, you're still angry. Yeah. Vengeance is soothing. You're still damaged and so on and so forth. And so we need transformative, healthy uh, ways of, of dealing with things, and um, I think that that's that's where the work needs to be uh, done. And and while we wait for that work to happen, uh, we need more uh, ways of diverting um, folks away from from the system. Um, there's you know many folks, for instance, who are living with uh, mental health and drug use issues uh, in our jails, in our prisons, in our penitentiaries. Now um, we're talking about. Health issues, and we're criminalizing them. Um, this is unconscionable. Mm-hmm. Um, we we could be talking about di- decarceration measures. There's are there are, you know, um, many people inside our sites of human caging now uh, that could be safely released. That we could be spending, um, you know, the funds dedicated towards incarceration that Sue Hale talked about um, federally. You know, the over $100,000 on average it costs for a federally sentenced prisoner per year, Um, the uh, $85,000 it costs to have someone in a provincial facility. We could be spending those monies differently on people in ways that would save us money in the long term and make for healthier and better communities um, in in the immediate term.
0: One wonders where all the fiscal conservatives are now. I never hear them talking about these things. I, there's a lot of Canadians who say, well, you know, I'm fiscally conservative, I'm socially progressive. I would love to hear what they think about this because it would suggest that they might not be uh, as either progressive or or fiscally conservative as they think. So let's talk about reform efforts then. Uh, it strikes me that there is, as you mentioned, Justin, a sort of social transformation aspect of this part about talking about um, the determinants of, of quote-unquote criminality already, so masculinity, toxic masculinity, uh, exploitative capitalism, um, broken communities because of years of structural prejudice and so on. But there's there are efforts to to fix that, and there are efforts to fix the processes we currently have to make them more humane. So, Suhail, I'll ask you about this. Uh, wh- what are some of the current efforts at reforming the system um some to transform it, but some to to make it more humane.
2: Yeah. So I'll just, like, first of all, touch on the the point of uh, more humane. I agree with you that uh, we need some immediate reform. However, like, uh, how, like, I view it is that, like, we cannot make it more humane. We only can um, alleviate some of the harm uh, and do some kind of, like, harm control or or
0: um harm reduction. In the system.
2: harm reduction thank you very much uh harm reduction for now you know it, you, you can never make human caging more humane hmm. you know however in order to do some sort of harm reduction uh, there is some meaningful uh, reforms that can be uh, enacted for example sentencing reforms um, we don't see that a lot uh, on this side, but in the US, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the US there is a lot of folks who are organizing around sentencing reforms, right? Uh, There is some work that's being done in Canada. For example, people who come in for um, criminalized behaviors that are related to poverty, such as theft and whatnot, right? And uh, for example, a lot of folks who are homeless, just uh, five, 10 minutes uh, away from here, who are homeless and engage in petty theft you know uh, those folks a lot of times are not are not diverted from jails they spend time here so in order to do some reform maybe we should start by not sentencing people who get caught for theft to to any jail sentences not even so but what happens is that if i if you Get caught with a theft, you won't go to jail, right? Because you have maybe I'm not sure, but you, maybe you have no criminal record, etc. But what happened is that when you have a criminal record, when you are caught for these uh, petty criminalized behaviors, you are also, you are brought to jails, to yeah. jail, waiting your pre-trial, uh, uh, waiting for your trial or your date in court. And what happened is you have thousands of people going through OCDC. Staying there for like very short periods of like two weeks, three weeks, I think two weeks in in, and These people are clogging the system. They're costing money. They're not getting the support they need so for example, it's just one meaningful reform would be given bail at the police station or at 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 the time of the arrest, right? Uh, and I'm just brainstorming here. Mm-hmm. Another meaningful reform uh, would be um, like considering um, the socioeconomic uh, backgrounds of people who engage in certain behaviors uh, before sentencing them, right? Uh, for example, um, people who are living with mental illness, uh, there is mental health court, right? It's not. It's not a perfect system, but there is mental health court. And there is drug court as well. There's drug court for people who use drugs, who engage in certain criminalised behaviours. So those systems are there. However, they don't serve uh, the ends that they are uh, established for. Uh, We have a lot of folks um, who go to drug court because they use drugs, they are living with addictions. But when they are uh, at OCDC, they spend months nonetheless These people spend months nonetheless behind bars, so why is drug court exist for? And those delays sometimes they get remanded, they don't even get to have a court appearance, they appear in front of a judge via video because the courts are clogged, duty councils have so much on their plates. Uh, Another meaningful reform would be to expand legal aid. Mm -hmm. We see cuts to legal aid, which made legal aid an even more restrictive uh, structure for legal aid is basically um, supports people who are low income to uh, have legal representation right so uh, expanding legal aid instead of cutting legal aid down expanding it in order for folks to be able to access justice more meaningfully legal aid lawyers don't have time for clients uh, as much as they have time for clients who pay for example because yeah. they have so so much clients they can take right and what happens is that the court becomes like a like a plea factory people are there plead 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 to charges right so we have to stop that like right away we have to uh, engage in holding uh, the crown prosecutors accountable as well if we have we have to like work towards that like organize to hold crown prosecutors accountable because often crown prosecutors they argue in front of a judge for very punitive sentences for people who should not be incarcerated Just because they have a lengthy criminal record, for example. I know many people who uh, are at the Ottawa Carlton Detention Center uh, on breaches. You know, breaches, discharge is basically if you get a condition from the court, condition of release, and you get released, and then you, for example, get caught by the police in the red zone so you get red zone from the market because that's what they do the red zone you from the market yeah if you're homeless all your support is basically in the market yeah communities are there right yeah your communities are there like your shelter sometimes is there Uh, people who uh, uh, like offer you some kind of uh, harm reduction uh, when you use drugs etc so people are red zoned from like Sussex to let's say King Edward and um Laurier to whatever, uh, to, to whatever street, right? So people are red-zoned from the areas where they live. And then when they're red-zoned, we think that by kicking them out of the area, we're gonna uh, diminish the harm or um, that they can cause, you know, quote, unquote. But what happened is people, first of all, get wrenched from their circles of support. Yeah. And on top of that, they get caught in that area, and they get sent to jail because of that. And they get 30 days for that, 30 days. Like when I used to be in the bullpen, and you ask everyone around what they're there for, everyone is there for a breach of probation. You know what I mean? So we, st- we should stop, stop that. Like, mm-hmm. breach of probation, uh, breach of recognizance. We should start putting people in jails for those uh, charges, right? We have to deal with them utterly. We have to ban the red-zoning, for example you know, ban all these practices that expose people to more criminalization and more harm.
0: It's stunning to me that, that we think we can improve someone by removing them from their community. I, I mean, it, on the one hand, I'm shocked but not surprised. But, but listening to you talk about this, if you were to design a system that would alienate and that would lead to recidivism, it sounds like it would look like this one. Right. I mean, you remove someone from their community. You criminalize them. You deprive them of supports. They were probably de- deprived of supports in the first place. We know the structure of oppression, and then we end up with the system. We shrug our hands and say, "Well, what are you going to do?" So, so Justin, I want to pick up on this with with you. I mean, how did we end up with this system? You know, if you were to look at it rationally, it makes no sense to me, and yet here we are. If it fails to meet its stated objectives, um, then what
1: does it do? Yeah. Um, and why do we keep it? Yeah, well, because it's successful. Yeah. It's successful at uh, reproducing inequality of disempowering people. Um, you, know, it's, it's, you know, if we were to walk into the Ottawa Carleton Detention Center, OCDC today, and have a look around or walk into a federal penitentiary, what are you likely to see? A lot of folks who have experienced poverty, um, a lot of folks who are racialized, Uh, A lot of folks who um, uh, perhaps are are gender non-conforming and so on and so forth. Um, And so you see uh, a lot of inequalities within this space. Um, Abolitionist Claire Colhane used to call uh, the prisons the best fight in town because it actually um, reveals uh, the damage uh, wrought on communities, certain communities I should say, by capitalism. Yes, there are people who make, you know, a tremendous lives for, them, uh, for themselves through this system, but there are many people who are exploited uh, that do not, and that ended, end up on the margins and push further to the margins uh, by this system, and that's why it exists. Um, I mean, uh, laws in this country are made by powerful people um, who tend to serve the interests of corporations, uh, who tend to serve uh, the interests, their own political interests, in terms of generating capital through punitive, emotive uh, types of, of of laws, policies, and practices, and so this system uh, is beneficial. It it also uh, makes people money increasingly, yeah. right? So, um, you know, we have a, a prison industrial complex uh, that. Um, is tremendously lucrative. So, for instance, when we think about uh, the new, the proposed new and bigger jail here in Ontario, um, that's going to happen uh, if we allow it to happen through a 30-year public-private partnership. Um, if the price tag ends up being a billion dollars, which was the top end that Infrastructure Ontario said it could cost in 2017, mm-hmm. that's you know $33.3 uh, million dollars a year every year for the next 30 years. Um, or $91,000 a day for the next 10,950 days um, tor- that is lining the pockets of people who are involved in the design, construction, uh, finance, and maintenance uh, of this, this new site of human caging. You know, we're essentially, um, those of us who live in Ontario, are going to be paying a jail mortgage. And in the meantime, you have all this funding that we could have used um, to prevent harm. Like, you know, um, we could be saving lives, we could be preventing victimization if we decide to make different choices. And I mean, th- those are just the costs of, of building the thing, um, never mind the costs of running the thing. It costs, you know, an average of $215 per day or $85,000 a year to cage someone in the province of Ontario In a provincial facility where people serve sentences of two years minus a day or wait pretrial detention, which is most of the folks there, Um, that is a lot of money. I mean, even if you if you put someone um, on a community uh, type of 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 uh, of um, supervision ahead of their trial or after their conviction, you could think about it this way. I mean, uh, Suhail raised the prospect like many people are breaching their conditions. Um, because the system's setting them up to fail, like yeah. giving alcoholics an alcohol prohibition. Well, what the hell do you think's going to happen? Yeah. Um, so we're setting people up to fail. Well, what could we do? To, if you take someone out of the prison, you save yourself 215 bucks, and you invest even half that money towards uh, social services in the community that can support these people and help them avoid uh, breaches, we'd be far better off. But we don't do that. Um, enough, and and I think that that's uh, a viable direction to to go and think about this. Is if, if you if we don't pay in the community, we're going to pay you know twice as much or more right. uh, when we cage someone, and we are accomplishing like little uh, in the process. You, you're you're essentially to use Stephen Harper's words when he was prime minister, uh, taking uh, taking them out of circulation for a while. But, I mean, that's tremendously costly. And there's yeah. other things we could be doing that would be more productive for them, for their loved ones, for their communities, and for society. I mean, we have this, what Todd Cleary, a uh, sociologist, criminologist in the United States, calls the myth of addition by subtraction. This idea that when we take someone out of their communities because they're involved in criminalized acts, that somehow all of us are better off for that. Um, well, in many cases, um, if, they, if they were uh, employed, for instance, or had other means of subsistence um, that they were helping their families out with, well, you've damaged that. Yes. Um, you've damaged other positive contributions uh, to the community um, and, you know, um, taking away, uh, in many cases, from the tax base and so on. And when you think about this, you really, you really question what what the point is? I mean, um, we could be doing other much more productive things. I mean, people yeah. need housing, people need yeah, access to to food, to employment, to education. You know, we have some of those things, obviously, within within our country, uh, but we could be doing so much more. Um, I mean, for the the cost of caging a hundred and forty more people. Um, at this new and bigger jail. So the current jail is 585, new one will be 725 beds. That's 12 million bucks a year. You could hire 180 educational assistants mm-hmm. in our schools right now that need them with kids that are currently going through things that they don't have adequate support for. And where do you think those people will end up? You know, where do you think, you know, these high school students that are going to have. Higher average class sizes in a few years when the cuts come down here in the province. I mean,
0: lose ten thousand um, teachers.
1: Right. Like, wh- where do you think where do you think that that's going to end up? We're literally. I don't think Doug Ford or, or Kathleen Wynne, who were, who initiated the jail, were thinking about this, but we're literally building the infrastructure needed to deal with our evisceration of our social welfare system, uh, and and you know, I, I say invest in kids. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, don't invest in, in caging them when they become adults you know everything you have been saying strikes me as quote unquote common sense you know this country we love to talk especially on the right we love to talk about common sense and yet when you when you listen to some of these common sense solutions and you try to, to persuade those in the center and on the right of their merits you find very quickly they don't care about common sense at all but I'll close on this I mean Justin you mentioned the prison industrial complex and we could do a whole episode on that. Uh, Suhail, you work, uh, run the jail hotline. That uh, strikes me as an essential service that that highlights a lot of the problems with this prison industrial complex and attempts to address them. Can you, closing out, tell us a little bit about, about that effort?
2: Yeah. So um, the jail accountability information line is a hotline that is dedicated to taking calls from incarcerated persons at the Ottawa Carlton Detention Centre, which is the Ottawa provincial uh, facility of human caging. And uh, we take calls from one to four, Monday to Friday. Um, the hotline has two components, accountability and information. So accountability, we hope hoping that by uh, working uh, in solidarity with prisoners uh, to be able to um, hold uh, the government, uh, the Ministry of Solicitor General and other ministries involved uh, in uh, human caging, and the administration and staff accountable for the human rights abuses that happen at the Ottawa Carlton Detention Centre. And we are, and the other component of the line is information, When we send folks information that they need uh, for various reasons. Um, we keep them connected to uh, essential community supports and community services uh, that are important for uh, safe reintegration into society beyond the walls. Uh, we also um, engage with folks. We send correspondence into the prison, um, whether it be from legal information to colouring pages. That's what, is the, that's what the hotline does. I think that the first component... Uh, of accountability is very hard to achieve. Obviously, it's not something that we claim that we are doing very fluidly, but that we are dedicated to continue doing, uh, especially in a system, in the jail system, that is uh, very uh, patriarchal, that is very racist. You know, it's a continuation of... Uh, Colonization efforts on Turtle Island. Uh, we receive a lot of calls from Indigenous uh, women, men, and uh, other folks um, who don't even have, can't even call um, like their own healing lodges uh, to which they're supposed to, uh, to 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 go later on. They they're not even to call. Uh, able to call essential uh, services in the community, so they cut off the community. We have uh, folks calling um, with problem with, for example, their uh, their their medicine uh, bags uh, that got seized from them after after a search. Right? Um, we clearly see. Uh, anti-indigeneity that is embedded in the systems uh, at the Ottawa Occult and Detention Centre. Uh, we see anti-blackness. They reported to us that uh, they are subject to, to violence uh, from the staff. Um, it's a very bleak and violent environment. Uh, the Ottawa Occult and Detention Center's Centre fails uh, the people that is supposed to care for uh, and that I can assert with the greatest conviction. Um, The Ottawa Carlton Centre creates uh, disability so there's people who enter at the Ottawa Carlton Centre safe and sound and they exit with uh, uh, disabilities and I'm talking physical disabilities because of the neglect uh, of the healthcare system in that jail. Um, The Ottawa Carlton Centre is a a space where um, uh, people and en- murders, incarcerated persons. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks enter alive and well and exit on body bags, right? So I think, uh, given the this um, state-sanctioned violence uh, that is predicated on punishment, that is predicated on othering uh, and treating certain categories or certain. Uh, socially constructed categories of people as less than, not worthy, not human. Uh, we think that it is important to keep um, a watch over those systems from the community uh, because obviously the already existing bodies that the ministry points to when uh, uh, they send us correspondence back, uh, the already, already existing mechanisms of grievance are not enough because if they were enough, they would have alleviated all of this harm. Yeah, so th- that's why where the jail accountability information lie comes in. We track uh, the abuses that happen behind bars and we work in solidarity with prisoners and we're a prisoner-led uh, initiative because we believe that our work is to support their struggle. And we took uh, around 2,500 calls in our first nine months of uh, mm. operation. Uh, and now the numbers are even uh, greater because uh, it's been uh, almost a year. December 10th is going to be a year that we've been taking calls. Uh, we engage in... Um, we tried to engage with the, the the policymakers and the government by sending them our reports and demanding change. Uh, we see some things done, but... Maybe not based on our advocacy, but it very little is done.
0: Well, that, that brings us to our time. I, I know that a lot of people listening are going to have visceral reactions uh, to this episode. I hope that they do. I also hope that they will interrogate their assumptions and interrogate those reactions and try to understand what the, the drive to punish and the need to punish says about those on the inside uh, but also especially on the, of those of us on the outside uh, justin did you have something you wanted to add
1: well i think uh i i just like to close that like in 1981 the religious society of friends so the quakers issued this statement the prison system is both a cause and a result of violence and social injustice throughout history the majority of prisoners have been the powerless and the oppressed and we are increasingly clear that the imprisonment of human beings like their enslavement is inherently immoral and is as destructive to the cagers as to the caged. So what they're basically saying is, is imprisonment is damaging to prisoners, it's damaging to staff, it's damaging to everyone. And we need to work towards abolition. And they adopted that statement um, you know, almost 40 years ago now. And I think what we need is a just transition away from this system towards a system of transformative justice. And that means in the short term what needs to happen is a moratorium, no more expansion of this system. We need to divert people where we can, decarcerate people where we can. We need to reduce the harms within the system that just makes people uh, worse off. And we're trying to do that through the jail accountability and information line. And we need to build community capacity Um, to respond to conflicts and harms that are currently criminalized and punished so that victims' needs can be met, so that perpetrators' needs can be met, and so that communities are healthier and safer. And in thinking about this, um, you know, folks in the labor movement, of which um, jail staff are a part, of which police officers are a part, um, need to think about, are these actual jobs that we want people to have. Mm-hmm. Um, we know, for instance, there was the police officer's memorial here this past weekend. There was a suicide of a young police officer who was 35 years old, a few young, years younger than I am. Um, these kinds of incidents, these things that are happening, should tell us um, that we should be working towards a future where we have fewer and fewer uh, of these jobs and those resources being spent elsewhere in more productive and healthier ways, and what I'm saying is, is that folks within the system that are there now, um, I I believe they deserve better lives, and that means uh, appropriate compensation uh, for folks for the damage they've endured while imprisoned and while imprisoning, uh, and and appropriate. Uh, ways of, of, of retraining that will lead them to careers that are just as viable economically uh, but less damaging socially. I mean, these careers, if you look at the criminological literature, um, are ones uh, where where folks experience uh, higher rates of mental health issues, of drug use issues, of, um, of relationship issues. Um, these are not healthy things. And when labor unions demand more of this stuff? Um, What are we signing people up for? When we found out, for instance, that the asbestos industry was damaging, were folks proposing to ramp up the industry? Sure, they defended it for a bit, but once they realized what was going on, um, they demanded appropriate compensation and transitions for people. And we need to be thinking about the same thing for all the industries. Uh, that are damaging in this country, the prison industrial complex, um, the oil industry. These are all things that people need. Uh, you know, they got into it for for most times for good reasons, yeah. um, good intentions, uh, and then they experience something completely different. People need to be given the same viable futures, and I think that's the role of the state to play in that, to facilitate these these difficult transitions, so that people can maintain and improve their standard of living uh, while moving on to other things in society. I mean, and you know that goes for the prison, that goes for uh, the oil sands. You can't just say shut it down. There's people, mm-hmm. lives, uh, families, communities that have been reliant on these systems for a long time, and, and we need um, the state to leverage its resources to facilitate a just transition for everyone.
0: Well, I think that's a a powerful and cogent place to to end. So my thanks to you, uh, Justin Pichet, and to Suhail Ben-Simon for coming here and and sharing uh, your perspectives, your arguments, and your stories. And thanks to each and every one of you for listening. We'll chat again soon.